Welcome to the WRSU Crew, the revolutionary show to hear all things sports, from your very own Rutgers Athletics to the hot topics in all professional and collegiate sports from around the globe, coming to you from your own Rutgers students. Sit back, relax, and enjoy your ride with the crew. And we are live here for the Friday Crew, Jake Schmid, Eddie Kalegi, and Chris Sakonis here with you. Four o'clock now, a little bit sunny weather outside. Chris, you're all the way down in Florida, though. Uh, you hitting the beach at all? You're uh, you doing this from the beach? Where, where are you doing your crew from today? I'm not doing it from the beach, no. Um, I was at the beach this morning. Water's pretty calm right now. Um, this is actually the best beach day since I got down here. So Really? Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, just, uh, I'm just back in my room, just chilling uh, with the Opal, which I hope I never have to use after this trip because I'm so burnt out from all the remote stuff that we've had to do the past year and a half. So, you know, that's kind of where I'm at right now, but, you know, just having a good time, uh, relaxing a little bit ahead of uh, football season, Rutgers women's soccer with a big win uh, last night, six nil over uh, Fairleigh Dickinson to open up their season. We'll be hearing from coach Mike O'Neill a little bit later on. So that'll be fun. Um, so Jake, I guess, you know, what's going on with you? Uh, not much. I mean, just been, you know, called that big uh, victory yesterday for women's soccer. I mean, it was their largest margin of victory in a season opener in the past, exceeding the past uh, 11 years. Um, they really, uh, they only allowed two shots. That's in an all came in the second half, which was pretty remarkable, having uh, more than double as many shots as FDU. It was really incredible to see how well this team was coming together. Because, Chris, you and I both know that they had some trouble scoring in the last about four, the last quarter of the season in the spring but uh they they really left it all on the field and they were looked pretty good so it, it was good to be at your sack again they had about 750 people there which was great um a lot of support from the team president holloway was also there um which was cool to see him and uh pat hobbs is also there of course no surprise he goes to basically every uh home event there but uh ruck that's this that kicks off our rutgers uh fall sports season of course uh, less than two weeks away from the football uh, opener against Temple on uh, the third, the first Thursday in September on the second, which is pretty exciting, Chris, and uh, really excited to be covering this football team and a lot of ex- good expectations, positive expectations coming into the season too. Yeah, I mean, we knew that this Rutgers team uh, was going to be good, uh, and obviously, you don't want to take too much from a single game, but if the offense can really pick up. Uh, and produce at a much higher level than they did last year. Uh, we could be talking about a Final Four team here in terms of Rutgers women's soccer and yeah. what they're really capable of. Because um, we we know Megan McClellan, one of the elite goalkeepers in all of college soccer. Uh, defensively, they've always been a very strong side, but it was always about creating chances and you know getting that support uh, to supplement Amir Ali up top. Uh, and you know if first impressions or any indication, Frankie Tagliaferri is going to be a very very popular name here at Rutgers because it, it seems like she has uh, the kind of skill set to not only score herself, but also create chances. And uh, I think she could play a pretty valuable role uh, in that respect. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, you look at what she did last night, of course, you know, she was top three in points in the big 10 ninth in the country last season at Penn state um, coming back to her home state of New Jersey from Colts neck, New Jersey. And she really, it almost is like that one, two punch with her and Amir Ali. And, and she, she really 
play they play so well off the ball together. We know how skilled Amira has been covering this team for the better part of the past uh, three years. And you could really see how in that first goal, just three minutes into the match, really, um, that uh, Talia Ferry had really good chemistry and be able to spread the, the floor and the pitch and really to – uh, give the ball to her teammates at the right time. I mean, she had a couple assists in that match, not just on the Amira Ali um, goal as well, but she assisted on the true freshman Riley Tiernan's first goal, who's um, the uh, sister of one of the volunteer coaches uh, for the team. And she's also, the forward line is really skilled with Talia Ferry, with Ali, with uh, Tiernan um, up and down the roster. And they're really quick. And it's very, and of course, we'll hear from Coach O'Neill uh, later on in the show, but one of the things that he's always stressed about whenever we've spoken with him, whether it's on crew or whether it's on the pitch itself after the match, is that he's this team is really about you know mentoring uh, the younger women and the younger talent. And, of course, that all stems from the captains like McClellan, Megan McClellan and Amir Ali and also um, Gabby Provenzano, who have really excelled in uh, making that brick wall, that back line for Megan McClellan that, you, that uh, only allowed uh, two shots, um, only uh, two on goal from... Uh, from only one on goal from last night. So it's really uh, a manifestation of all of that, of getting the right pieces and getting a very, of course, they, all the freshman recruiting class are up there and, and, and high, very highly ranked. And, and it shows with the way that this skill set, such as Emily Tiernan, who the first, we thought she scored, uh, Alex Carmenati and myself, when we were calling the game yesterday, we thought she scored in the first half, but it was, it was an offsides call um, that was very delayed offsides call, and, uh, which, is, which was interesting because the ref really waved it after some bickering from uh, Coach TP of the uh, FDU side. Um, but nonetheless, she easily could have scored three goals, and you could have easily saw uh, Talia Ferry um, get, um, get another one and get, uh, get uh, two more to get a hat trick. It was really just an all-high-oriented uh, high offensive game that I really haven't seen from this program uh, in quite some time, and it'll really prepare them well for that September 19th, that for their first Big Ten match against Talia Ferry's old school in Penn State. So when you watch them play, because I wasn't able to watch a game last night. I only caught some of the radio broadcast. Uh, and Which is the, the better thing to do. Yes, of course. But um, uh, my point being, you know, I, I guess, Jake, you, you've covered this team now for three years. Um, you know, I guess stylistically, what was the difference between how they played last night against uh, Fairleigh Dickinson and just what you've seen from them in the past? I think a big thing was set pieces. I think that they really excelled on set pieces. They had seven corners and they scored on a couple of them. So I think that that really getting in the right position, of course, they were winning the free kick battle. They were winning um, a lot of a long ball and they were winning. They're putting the balls in through ball plus style. And it, it was really an interesting development because FDU, you know, they're, they put in a freshman goalie in uh, Melanie uh, Nielsen from Denmark and she um was was interesting. It was a questionable call, and and you could see that that lack of experience, you know, compete with all the experience that Rutgers, uh, all the upper class women they have, and uh, Talia Ferry, and and it's really not just you know the players that they have, but also the style and the fast pace that they play. Whenever they had the ball, they were never retreating in their own zone. That's something that they actually did very well out of stopping FDU. FDU was retreating the whole second half, the first twenty minutes. It was just FDU retreating in um, between the Sarah Brocious goal and the Riley Tiernan goal before they put in all the they subbed out all the. Uh, first uh, team starters at about the 75th minute mark, which and uh, put in uh, Emma Hunsinger, for example, at goalkeeper who got her second uh, game played. I mean, when you, you know, Megan McClellan gets her 26th uh, career shutout, it's really just uh, goes to show you how uh, skilled and talented the this team is and the speed, the quickness, but also um, they're really communicating. Um, which was an area that I think that Rutgers has struggled in a little bit. I mean, look, they had a couple offsides um, calls, and one of them 
I didn't really look like it was offsides. It was the Tiernan potential goal in about the 34th minute in the first half. But I think that that uh, Coach O'Neill has this team really primed right. I mean, they had a really good exhibition season um, in training camp. They won combined 9-0 against Navy and Colgate um, since uh, August 12th and August 15th. So they really uh, were really prepared for this match, of course. And, you know, Temple did lose their last match to Maryland 3-0, and they'll take on Temple tomorrow. Of course, we'll have coverage of here at 645 for that match. Um, but it's it's going to be interesting because now these, you know, they didn't have an out-conference schedule to, to get them ready for last year. And last year they won uh, they won a ground in the uh, NCAA tournament against Southeast Louisiana, but then ultimately, you know, could have beat Clemson, but it came down to PKs. So it's um, it's good that they have this non-conference schedule. And if they're able to do that against teams like FDU and Temple and even Monmouth and LaSalle that are coming up that you know, that big game against Penn State and then Michigan right after is they're going to be very well uh, prepared for that. Yeah, I think, you know, just uh, an exciting season overall for Rutgers uh, women's soccer. Um, and, you know, um, Jake, if you have uh, the audio ready, we could maybe uh, listen into uh, Coach Mike O'Neill and his uh, post-game interview that you did with him after the game. Yeah, I can uh, get on that right now. All right, so... Um, this is something that we're going to start doing a lot more of is getting you that post-game reaction uh, for sports like soccer, wrestling, um, and so on. Um, you know, we're trying to expand our coverage a bit more. So um, we're going to post some of these on Twitter, some of these on, uh, um, you know, on Anchor. Uh, so definitely want to be on the lookout for that. Um, and, you know, just uh, keep, uh, keep it locked here for uh, Rutgers soccer all throughout the fall because we're going to be covering uh, every home game, uh, whatever postseason games there are, maybe a select road game here or there. We'll have to wait and see on that. Um, but, um, you know, definitely going to want to keep it posted uh, here uh, on WRSU, your flagship station for Rutgers women's soccer. Jake, do you have that audio up or do you need another minute? Oh, I'm just getting it up. Um, just got to just gotta um, put it together and uh... – Put it up now, so I just need like about thirty seconds. Eddie, you've been pretty quiet. How are you doing today, my man? I'm doing pretty good, Chris. And I wanted to chime in a little on the soccer team. A really impressive okay. win for them. I mean, came in 25th ranked, and of course, like you said, they won a NCAA tournament game last season. And I know it's against some smaller teams, the two scrimmage games, and then beating Fairly Dickinson, but they still haven't allowed a goal yet in three contests so far. So I think they're getting in a really good step. And like Jake alluded to, they didn't have that non-conference schedule to get ready for the Big Ten campaign last year. They have it this time. And the fact that they're playing so well together, despite, you know, have for example, a true freshman scoring in the first game and everybody, Talia Ferry, making things happen on offense. The defense has been locked down. I really think this women's soccer team is in good position heading into those games against Temple and Providence and then later going into the Big Ten schedule. Yeah, definitely for sure. You know, Rutgers women's soccer has in recent years been one of the most successful programs at Rutgers. Uh, Coach Mike O'Neill has made the NCAA tournament in every um, every game that he has, every game, every season that he has uh, coached the Scarlet Knights, uh, always recruited very well, um, has a Final Four run under his belt back in 2015, looking to make another one this year. Uh, and so just a program that's very consistently talented and well-run and uh, should be a joy to watch uh, in the fall. Yeah, it definitely will be. And we've got the audio ready for the post-match press conference with Coach Neal, about two minutes of it, but um, very, very impressive win for them. And Rutgers went on to win 6-0, of course, playing Temple tomorrow. But here is Coach Mike O'Neill that we spoke with him following 
uh, the mat, the win, the 6-0 win yesterday over FDU. Yeah, Coach, it was a good one. You guys really all-around offensive effort. Uh, shout out for Megan McClellan, uh, upper yeah. 20 for her career uh, as well. The freshmen, really, a lot of freshmen starting today, of course. Courtney Root uh, defensively yeah. as well. What have you really seen out of their progress from training camp now manifest into the, really, to the uh, first game of the season? Yeah, it just takes some time coming in and getting adjusted to a new team. And, uh, you know, they've hit the ground running, you know. So they've had a, they had a captain's uh, preseason before they started with the regular preseason. That really helped them. It helped them to get comfortable and have a good understanding of the way that we want to play. Um, so they've been doing a really good job. Frankly, Talia Ferry got her first uh, goal here, but you guys have already seen faced her a couple times at Penn State. Yeah. Of course, your first Big Ten game is against Penn State on the 19th of September. What have you really seen from her just being a leader and really uh, playing on the pitch very well, uh, not just scoring the goal today, but also with the assists as well on both sides of the ball? Yeah, she brings so much experience. So it's not only the goals, the assists, it's the, it's the leadership. You know, she's an experienced player, and, uh, but she's also a player that's very humble and makes the players around her better. But part of that is developing a relationship with the players that she's playing with. And you have to be open to that. And uh, so Frankie is like everybody else here. You know, we're trying to build relationships and make sure that every time we step on a field, whether it's training or games, if we get better. The back line was really working for Megan McClellan. Of course, she had the shutout, uh, no goals allowed, only one shot really, and it came in the second half really late. Uh, McClellan is another one of your captains that you named prior to the season. What has she really brought to the pitch in training camp and now, and of course, you know, on all the Big Ten player of the watch list and all tournament team and all region? Well, it's really just the experience, you know, because we've made a lot of uh, changes in the back over the last three games. We've tried different things. So the organization that is really important of the players in front of her. So it gives her an opportunity to lead different people. Um, but I also believe that, you know, we talk to Meg all the time about doing the things that you're supposed to do and then come up with saves that give us the best opportunity to win matches and not let goals in. And that's what happened. They had a good opportunity. She came up with a big save. So, uh, yeah, she did. A, she was she was good tonight. That was uh, Coach O'Neill speaking with us uh, post-match yesterday. Uh, Big victory for Rutgers. They went up up uh, 6-0 on um, FDU. Fairly Dickinson from Teaneck. They'll take on Temple tomorrow after uh, tomorrow evening. Coverage, of course, starts at 6.45 p.m. here on WRSU. And we've got Locks of the Week coming up next for you on crew. Baseball, some soccer. uh, And we'll see what happens with that. See whose lock will actually... Uh, hit, but keep it tuned to WRSU FM, the Brunswick and online at WRSU.org for more crew. And we got locks of the week here on the crew. Jake Speed, Chris Taconis, Eddie Ka- Kalegi. Uh, there we go. Tumbled a little Kalegi. bit, but uh, <laughs> I was uh, Kalegi, right? That's yes. how you said. Awesome. Can we get the names right, please, Jake? Come on. I'll uh, Come on. I'll need like phonetic spelling, like how Alex uh, showed me a while ago. That's uh, sending sent it to I think Dylan McCoy too. The phonetic phonetic spelling of his name. Um, I think like a couple times. So, uh, but we got locks of the week now. Uh, Chris, do you have a lock for us, or are you still uh, waiting on it? I am. I'm going to give you a little bit of a baseball lock, so how about that? That's a wild one for you. 
Yeah, so uh, in the uh, Little League World Series, we've got Abilene, Texas against East Lake Washington. Uh, I'm going to go with Abilene Moneyline here. They've got some really hot bats, some really uh, good base running, uh, and I like the pitching that they've uh, shown uh, in their run to the Little League World Series. So Abilene minus 120, lock it in. How is uh, Tom's River doing? Tom's River? Let me see. I don't know. Because I know they were They're playing th- tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Who are they playing? Manchester, Connecticut. Oh, wow. Battle of the Tri-State yes. area. They played On Nebraska ABC. yesterday. Yeah, I saw a little of that match of that game. Yeah. But, but also, um, um, the uh, team that is playing, one of the teams that's playing right now, Palm City, Florida, is actually like 10 minutes away from where I am right now. So, oh, wow. You know, it's kind of like the closest thing I'll get to like a hometown little league run. So that's kind of cool. Cool. One's the, um, oh, Oregon just beat uh, Pennsylvania earlier, uh, too. I saw that was yeah, on Lake like Oswego uh, beat Oaks PA. Yeah. Is yeah. um how are they are they I know there's no international teams that are competing. Usually they have like a Tokyo team from like Japan competing. I know they're just doing US teams. Yeah. Th- I guess I don't think they are because of the pandemic. Yeah, I was they have sixteen teams this year. They actually split it into like the Tom Seaver bracket and the Hank Aaron bracket. Oh, I wow. both of them and they have uh, you know, eight teams in each. It's it's two teams from each of the eight. Regions in the U.S. that you usually just have one champion from each of the regions. They right. have two this time. Yeah, like you have like a Mid-Atlantic region. I remember always seeing that like from last year, yeah. years past. Yeah, like for example, for the Mid-Atlantic, it's the Tom's River team that lost the first game in Nebraska. And then that uh, Pennsylvania team that you guys were talking about. They're both from the Mid-Atlantic. And they're both wearing the same uniform. Oh, at- that's confusing. <laughs> yeah, wow. And then for fans, they, have, they closed it to the public. It's only... Um, each team got 250 tickets that they could use. Oh, like for parents and yeah. all that. So it's going to be a little different. I mean, when I got to go there a couple years ago, I got to do like the kids cast there on ESPN two, And it was so cool when they had like the hill and stuff. And I got to slide down the hill once with all the kids there. And I'm just from watching the first couple of games, it's really different seeing just the hill, the famous hill in the outfield is pretty empty. And just the crowd being so empty compared to, I mean, the fans who are the parents of the players are, very excited and ecstatic to see their kids playing, but it's usually such a big air, big event for the area of Williamsport and really for all of central Pennsylvania. And some of that is sort of gone, but it's so good that they at least got to have the little league world series this year after it got canceled last summer. That's uh that's pretty incredible. So like, were you, so like the Hill, like I know that's, do they have, that's some of the seating too, right? Like some of the people I know I've like, they like bring lawn chairs out there and they just like sit out there and that's like an interesting, like a, like a vantage point of the stadium. There It is. And then there's also these, I guess these great craftsmen who, because of course the Hill, of course it's very steep trying to balance a lawn chair. They use a saw and saw off the bottom <laughs> of the chair legs to no angle way. them to keep them on the hill. Really? Yes. So you get like special like modified chairs for that then. Like not your typical beach lawn chairs. Like those will just slide probably. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Some of these people That's are very creative. Yeah. Do they, do they have like a store in like Williamsburg that like sells like those kind of chairs? I'm sure they'd make a big profit. Like I don't know. Every summer. Honestly, they probably do. They have so many Little League themed things all across Williamsport. I mean, they, the city makes such a big deal about it every year. Yeah, they have a, World, they have a the League World Series, I think, museum, too, on the grounds. Yeah, right at yeah. the front of the whole thing. Yeah. Wow. That's um, that's interesting. I remember there was a team from Livingston, like, about 10 years ago from my hometown that was, like, close to making it, but they never, they were, like, they, like, lost that final game, I think, to, like, someone from, like, Rhode Island or something for the mid-major, uh, mid-Atlantic thing. Um, but... You know that's it's interesting. Um, I'm gonna also go to the MLB. I'm gonna pick against the Mets today. It's the 
Mets and the Dodgers, of course, the Mets, not uh, all three of us Mets fans here, and they're not looking so good. Four and six, their last ten. They've had a nine-game lead in the division right before the All-Star break, and then, of course, just like Taiwan's Walker's ERA ballooned up to about six. They're about five games back now, and they're really having a difficult team against. They have one of the they have the strong worst schedule in terms of strength. Very against uh, hard teams. Um, in the rest of the season compared to their division rivals such as the Braves, who are matching up against the Orioles after sweeping the Marlins, and then the Phillies, too. So uh, it's not really looking good for the Mets. And Carrasco with a 10.32 ERA, not looking good for him. I'm going to pick the Dodgers. I think Bueller, Walker Bueller has been stellar. Of course, he's definitely me up there with a Cy Young candidate for the NL with uh, Zach Wheeler, but biased. I hope Zach Wheeler gets it. I think that the Mets kind of did him wrong a little bit, but I think that um, Bueller is going to have a very incredible uh, night as he always does, as the Dodgers are third in the league for scoring runs for a reason. They give him that run support, something that the Mets uh, desperately could take a lesson uh, out of that textbook for. And then, Eddie, do you have a lock, too? Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned the Atlanta Braves, and I'm going to pick uh, in their favor against the Baltimore Orioles, who have lost 15 consecutive games. And the Braves have won six straight, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, their offense has been insane. I really thought a couple of months ago when Ronald Acuna Jr. went down with that season-ending injury, I thought that was it for the Braves. Me too. And then right after that, Mike Soroka tears his Achilles walking into the stadium just after he How does that it. even happen? I like, know. That sounds like a Mets type of injury. That is like a Mets. Like, <laughs> Cespedes falling off his horse a couple of years ago in his ranch. Yes, and but... The Braves, they're minus 210 against the Orioles. They have Max Freed, one of their top pitchers on the mound against Keegan Aiken. I just don't see how you pick a pick against the Braves right now. Freddie Freeman just hit for the cycle in four plate appearances the other day against the Marlins. Ozzie Albies is playing out of his mind, and the pitching staff has been solid, and the Braves trying to take advantage because, of course, we all know how much the Mets have been struggling. The Phillies aren't doing much better right now either. They just got swept by the Arizona Diamondbacks yeah, somehow. By the Diamondbacks, who are like one of the worst teams in the league, too. Yeah, so the Braves are right now the team in the best position, and I don't think that changes tonight. I got the Braves easily over the Baltimore Orioles. And you, Ozzie Albies, I'm just glad you mentioned that because he's really stepped up a lot in terms of like Acuna and you know kind of being Acuna was the guy. Ozzie Albies is now the guy for the Braves to round out the season in the dark days of summer as the season wanes about a month and uh, postseason play. And you know they could, I can see them making a push, winning around uh, in the playoffs should they get there too. I I just think they're they're built with that bullpen too, very strong arms too that they have. Yeah, and you know, they match up probably, I mean, it's assumed that a team from the NL West, probably the Giants, would get the top seed. Yeah. So uh, a series with the Milwaukee Brewers, potentially, if the Brewers' young pitching would struggle at all, I think the Braves could easily have a chance to march right through and get back to the NLCS and contend with an NL West team. I don't think they'd really beat them because I think the Dodgers, Giants, and Padres are all better teams than the Atlanta Braves this year. But I think there's definitely a chance they could win a round in the playoffs. Yeah, it, baseball's always one of those sports where it's always, you know, it comes close and every there's always those, that close division and that NL, that NL West, you know, that seeding really could flip. The Dodgers are two and a half back from the Giants, and the Padres are in that wild card spot, um, of course. But uh, AL West, too, both both West divisions in both leagues, with the Oakland A's about two and a half games back from the uh, Astros, too. It's been really entertaining to watch just all across baseball this year, and there's so many tight division races even if it's really good teams like the Giants and Dodgers or the NL East where everybody is just treading water at 500. But it's been a fun year and just a few weeks left in the season. We're starting to see if some of these trade deadline moves will pay off for some teams, which they have for teams like the Yankees. Yeah. Or not pay off like they have for, haven't for teams like the Mets. But you know what? A few more weeks. Still a lot can change. 
And it's going to be fun to see how it all boils down. Yeah, the Yankees are a really, really fascinating team. Of course, you know, Rizzo and Gallo, they call them the Italians. I've seen it all over social media. And it's and it's really, you know, they, they beat the Twins 7-5 last night. They're Now they're in second. They overtook the Red Sox for second in the AL East. They're five games back on the Rays. The Yankees have won their last seven. They've really uh, won on a tear, which is interesting to watch. But uh, we were also we were just talking before off air, Eddie, about how uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo is now becoming a part owner of the Milwaukee Brewers. He's going to purchase a stake. Uh, sources told Jeff Passan uh, of ESPN, which is interesting because we know that Giannis has done a lot. As he's been talking about wanting to do like one of those you know business ventures uh, kind of thing, like a lot of basketball like players do and. Um, like some of them, some of them have really uh, tried to do so. He has that minority stake now um, in the Brewers' um, ownership, buying that, buying it now. Of course, he just led them to the uh, NBA championship, and uh, it's you know it's it's kind of like uh, with Patrick Mahomes too. They're saying he's taking the Mahomes route um, as well because he you know was a small market star, just like Giannis in Milwaukee and Patrick Mahomes in Mil- in uh, in Kansas City, and he also you know joined the Royals ownership group too. So it's interesting, Chris. You see this like trend um, as well, and um, you in uh, a lot of like pro sports with these kind of players, and a lot of them also own stakes in like club teams in the MLS too. I'm sorry, Jake. Can you repeat that? You cut out a little bit there. Yeah, sure. Can you hear me now? Yeah, now, now you're coming in. Yeah, they're talking about Giannis and how he's uh, he has got a stake in the Brewers now, and you know he's following them Holmes route in Kansas City with the Royals, and you kind of see that in the MLS too with teams you know like St. Louis. I'm sure somebody from the Cardinals or somebody from the Blues is gonna in the St. Louis team that's coming up, and the Austin FC like Matthew McConaughey, the actor, Texas graduate, has a. Uh, has a majority stake there, so you kind of see a lot of these like um, public figures and in the public eye, kind of uh, buying up like teams and uh, putting like their own spin on like ownership too. Yeah, um, also James Harden with uh, the Houston Dynamo, he bought yeah. a mm-hmm. piece of them too. Yeah, so. that was more re- that was yeah. recent too. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're like a top top athlete, not only are you making hundreds of millions over the course of a few years in uh, salary, but you're also getting endorsement money. So LeBron James has now earned, I saw it earlier today on Twitter, he's now earned between salary and endorsements $1 billion over the course of his career. So as salaries can, and endorsements just can keep going up and up and up, um, you know, we're going to get to a point where athletes are going to have that amount of capital and you're starting to see them investing in these teams uh, in some cases while they're still playing. Um, so just just a testament to the kind of money that uh, these athletes are getting now and what they can do with it. Yeah, and it's really something you know to invest in, like in a team, invest in a future, and be part of that, like of that team um, as well. Um, of course, his cash flow is going to go up a lot, and he's it's uh, it's pretty cool that he's like kind of doing that and he's taking like an interest there, and of course that's going to drive in more revenue and more fans um, as well. Um, I want to stick with the NBA because the NBA is really. You know, kind of like the downturn of it. Of course, we went through free agency a little bit. Um, but what really just came out a couple of recently, of course, was the Durant and Draymond Green. Um, that uh, um, the news about that. Did you hear about that, Chris? With uh, uh, Durant and Green and um, how they um, reveal like some bigger NBA truths. Um, they're saying it was some episode of Chips that they were hosting, and Durant was talking about his confrontation with uh, Draymond Green before he um, in his ending uh, years in. Uh, the Golden State in the Bay, um, and um, and he said that it, the conversation, the confrontation from uh, Draymond didn't really ultimately leave him from make him want to leave uh, the Bay. It was uh, he said it was the way that everybody um, 
acted like um, in general, and and he said that um, like with Steve Kerr and um, and how they would put a mask over everything in quotes with what Durant said, and he said that it was a big situation for them as a group, and and even Draymond Green said that the ownership, you know, they kind of messed it up when they lost um, uh, as well because um, they haven't been in the playoffs in uh, any season before then, and the and, but aside from the play-in game, really, and they said there's a level, level of that interpersonal uh, dynamic at play when it comes to them and their relationship with management, too, which is kind of interesting with Golden State and, of course, Steve Kerr, who was uh, one of the new coaches uh, also. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so interesting to hear about, like, what happened at the end of uh, at the end of Durant's uh, time with the Warriors and you know the sort of clashing that would uh, go on uh, in that locker room. So, um, yeah, yeah, that, that that's kind of interesting to be honest. Yeah, and it kind of it kind of sheds a new light because one of the things that like people like Stephen A. Smith and analysts and commentators um, in the sports world were saying was about you know Durant like and Green and their relationship, but they actually do have a pretty solid relationship. I'm sure it may have been rocky at that time, but not from each other. Maybe from the imposing imposing of management um, per se. But it, it is interesting that you don't really get to see that unless you're around the team and and unless you do talk about it openly. Because some players like to keep uh, those relationships. Relationships uh, and those conversations private, which is interesting too. And it's interesting to think about all that was kept under wraps. And this is the first time we're really starting to hear about the decline of the Warriors dynasty. And it almost sort of mirrors from like watching the Last Dance last summer yeah. about how the Bulls fell apart and how so many of those stories. It's funny for the average viewer, even someone who followed the NBA back in the '90s. They had no idea about some of these things that had happened. Not a clue. Like the whole thing with Dennis Rodman going on vacation in the middle of the season. Like the stuff like that. I mean. Yeah, they just downplay it. They're like, oh, he's got like an illness or something or he's not feeling well. I remember they called it like a stomach bug or something like that. He was he was in Vegas gambling. Yeah, but it's it's the same thing that Steve Kerr and Warriors ownership did to try to mask these issues that Durant had with Draymond Green. And clearly it didn't really impede their progress. I mean, they still got to the NBA finals that year. And if it hadn't been for both Durant and Clay Thompson having devastating injuries back to back games, they may have won another title and outlasted the Toronto Raptors. You just never know. But it's really it's interesting. It's eye opening. It's nice to see that Durant and Draymond Green, who many people thought had a poor relationship and that was similar to when Durant left OKC and had a very tense relationship with Russell Westbrook. It's not that way. They played really well together on the Olympic team this summer, and now the two of them are together and, you know, have kind of made things up. And it'll be interesting to see when history goes through and years from now when we right. all go back and look at this Warriors dynasty, if maybe some other stories come out about the relationship, for example, between Kevin Durant and maybe Stephen Curry. And Steph Curry is always a more reserved player, but you never know with players like Curry and Durant who both want to be that number one guy and be in the spotlight in the Bay. Uh, and if that had any sort of conflict, but not to speculate, of course, but just just thinking about all those different aspects of this dynasty. And it's cool to see Kevin Durant and Draymond Green kind of be outspoken to the public so we know a little more about this Golden State team. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really nice way to put it. And I'm looking at some of the articles um, now. Of course, uh, Nick Friedel uh, of ESPN was writing about it um, on Wednesday about how they, he broke the news about how they handled it and everything. And they both blamed not just Steve Kerr, but also team president and general manager Bob Myers, who I think is more at fault is what Durant and Draymond Green were saying more for Durant leaving the team following before he came to Brooklyn uh, following that 2019 year. Um, where they really they said that you know there was that emotional back and forth on the floor that really 
when in November the, of uh, 2018, when they played the Clippers at the Staples Center, is really when it manifested and when it started. And Green was ultimately suspended for that game. And uh, and Draymond Green was saying that he had he had a message for the Warriors management. He said, "You guys are about to um, really um, discombobulate things, of course, and this is really going to set off like a chain of reaction." And and he said, "The only person that can make this right is me and and KD and Kevin Durant." Um, and he's like, "There's nothing that you all can do about it." So he was saying that you know it was up to them, but they wouldn't even let him or Durant really kind of do about it. They really kept it under wraps, as you. Um, as you mentioned, and they appear to get him in the next couple of weeks of that November. Uh, Chris, our freshman year's here. I remember there's that uncomfortable nature of there was a public incident with that also combined that they were repeatedly asked in almost every city by the media about the organization and the and the culture and and uh, clash as well. And um, and um, Draymond it's, it's Draymond Green has not has been very quick to point out about this. And that's of course the year when Durant tore his Achilles in Game Five of the Finals uh, when they lost to the Raptors. Um, as well, and it's funny you mentioned that because Durant also uh, mentioned you bring up the last dance because Durant says he noticed the, the same parallels between the Warriors situation and the Bulls breakup um, as well. And the other thing too, not just about Dennis Rodman, but the other thing was Scottie Pippen didn't go into the game after that um, when he didn't go into the game, mm-hmm. and the whole team in the locker room said, "Scotty, you you messed this up." And um, and um, after that play, I remember that was one of the big moments, and and that's something he was uh, saying was exactly what happened. Um, with what they had, were um, that uh, that we didn't even have to go through with it, and and he said he wanted them to like let's just wipe our hands and finish the task, and I just didn't like the vibe between everybody. It was really weird, and it was one of the most uncomfortable locker rooms I've been in. That's a quote from uh, Kevin Durant. So it, it it really does mirror the Last Dance, and it's kind of interesting because they really did keep this under wraps. Of course, uh, Draymond Green has he's spoken about this before. He's hardly been adamant, but I think it's. It's really an interesting way to look at now at that Warriors team and that dynasty of that team about, you know, that super team that they had similar to the Bulls, but also similar downfall too that they kind of really well uh, in their way kept uh, under wraps. Yeah. And Jake, one last thing, like one the most significant similarity between these two teams is that the media sort of portrayed it as either an issue amongst the star exactly. players or from the coach. But it's the exact same thing. For the Bulls issue, it all boiled down to Jerry Krause, as we learned uh, in the last dance. Yeah. And here it seems like the Warriors management, headed by Bob Myers, seems to be where a lot of the drama came from. That these players, and many people thought, for example, that Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, had such a you know bad relationship years later after their retirement. That's not the case at all, but a lot of them are very resentful of how management handled and sort of broke up that team themselves when they thought enough was enough. A little different with the Warriors situation. Injuries sort of forced their hand, but it's a similar idea that it boils down to the management rather than the players fighting themselves. And you could see that Kraus and Reinsdorf were at odds, too, I remember, in the in the last dance. And, you know, Bob Myers, I'm sure that maybe there was an assistant GM or, or something, because he was both positions that was also kind of fighting him for that. But it is really interesting to, uh, to take a look at... Uh, how those the parallels between those years and um, the uh, the Warriors teams as well, and do you think that this could happen with another team, Chris, um, for example? And you know, with I don't know, the Nets don't have any problem with the GM. They have no, you know, Scott. Scott Marks been very good with uh, being Sean Marks. Excuse me, has been very good with uh, being able to keep uh, the players well on on well uh, kept. And I think that they've been just being able to get the deal with Duran. I think that you can tell that Duran is much happier in Brooklyn now with. Uh, the power around him with James Harden and Kyrie Irving and DeAndre Jordan as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that they're in a pretty good position uh, roster wise. Um, You know, really, I think if 
Durant, Irving, and Harden all stay healthy, uh, they're winning the NBA championship. So, um, you know, that is uh, sort of where they're at, in my opinion. Um, I, I really don't think, for the first time in really a long while, I don't think the Nets really have that many major moves left to make. The only thing I would say is maybe shore up the center spot a little bit, but um, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I think they're um, primed uh, for a good... And we got Can We Just Talk now here on the Friday Crew. And a lot of, you know, as campus is starting to open up and a lot of uh, freshmen and, and sophomores who haven't really seen much of the campus, haven't had a chance to really interact and live on campus, start to come back and starts to resemble that normalcy, Chris, that we've been used to prior to March of 2020 in the past year and a half. And uh, it's a uh, walk around campus a little bit today, and it's starting to get a little bit more livelier. Of course, they have the sign uh, right before that you get on eight, Route 18 about uh, move-in day, expect delays from the 23rd to the 27th for next week for those four days. So uh, it's uh, it's really good just to – it's a good feeling to have everybody back in a, in a safe manner and a, in a normal – in like that kind of way where you're able to be able to interact with people, you're able to get into that ebb and flow of, uh, of Rutgers campus. Yeah, I mean, you're finally seeing, you know, everyone's going to be coming back on campus or mo most people are going to be coming back on campus. Um, a lot of classes are going to go back to being in person. Um, you know, student bodies like something like, was it 99% vaccinated? At yeah, this like 99.5 mm -hmm. or something high like that. Yeah. 99%. Yeah. So, um, you know, that that's basically yeah, as safe of a position as you could possibly be in. Um, so that's obviously huge. And, um, you know, just. Um, really, really excited to be back as a student. Um, you know, last year was basically just me going back and forth from home, uh, calling games. So, um, you know, I want to have a bit more of an experience heading into my final year. So definitely excited for that. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely something that, uh, is going good to look forward to it for Eddie. Of course, you know, you obviously been doing remote high school and remote past year and a half or so. And, um, what is it, you know? really been like getting back and getting into that college mindset, you know, not just going in person, but like a kind of like a new lifestyle change. Like it is kind of like one of those new changes, like milestone kind of things. Yeah. And I think it's even more, it's, it's even more significant this time around, because like you mentioned for the past year, I've been going to school on my computer in my room for the most part. We had a, uh, I'm a touch in high school. We had the last four weeks or so that most kids went in. We still were able to have prom and graduation, which I'm happy about because there were so many schools that didn't have that opportunity. But it's still such a big difference after I was online for so long to kind of get back and used to that. But I'm just happy to be on campus and going to be having some classes in person. And, of course, being in here at WRSU, uh, it's really great to actually be able to experience all that I had hoped to get in my first few weeks at Rutgers University. And even though I'm going to be a commuter, um, I'm still going to be uh, heading to campus a lot and just getting to experience everything and just getting to take in what Rutgers has to offer. And I think we all know it's it's not the same. That Everybody tries their best to make right. virtual learning, asynchronous learning, as good as it can be. But 
When you're at home, it's just simply, it's not the same experience at all. But getting to be back here, getting to be back in school, and I'm, I, it's going to be an adjustment for me over the, after having 15 months of, you know, learning just from home, not to mention the fact that I'm starting college and going from high school, and that's, that's a big adjustment for anyone just to begin with. But it's, it's really exciting to have to experience these new challenges and get used to what Rutgers has to offer and to be a Scarlet Knight. Yeah, and I think that's one of the that's a nice way to put it too. I think that it's you know it's something that you that's the college is like interesting. It takes like a little bit of time to adjust, but I think that everybody like every all like levels from freshmen to seniors are in the same boat in the sense that they've been doing remote learning in whichever capacity, whether it be their previous year in high school or previous year in college. And I think that there's going to be that little bit of anticipation to get back in the classroom and get back to doing normal day to day activities. Um, you know, like if like if I would have a class on Cook Douglas, I would get food at like Harvest and then I like one of the restaurant like local like restaurants um, they would have there at the student center. Like and then I, I haven't had that opportunity to really do some of that, you know, stuff where you get to go eat unless you're getting takeout for the past year and a half. So it, it's really been nice that uh, Rutgers have been very uh, diligent with being able to have a lot of accessibility um, for everybody. And I think that. Of course, um, you know, the, the buses, you know, of course, they're going to be packed the first week and a half or so. But I, I would definitely give like I always give myself time to go back to go back to class and get on the bus. And of course, because it's it takes a little bit of time to do that. But um, but you're commuting. You don't really have to worry about that too much. You have your you have your car and all that. But um, it's uh, it, it's going to be interesting, Chris. I think it's, it's going to be a lot of all four years have been on remote learning and they're kind of in the same boat. Everybody with in that respect, too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're talking about, you know, for the first time in 18 months, everyone coming back on campus uh, and two classes of students, both the freshmen this year and the sophomores were freshmen last year, uh, basically just discovering what college life is all about. And I I think that's kind of an interesting sociological experiment Mm. um, Mm -hmm. when half the campus, half the student body has basically never been there before. I'm kind of interested to see how that dynamic shakes out. And I don't think anyone really knows how it's going to play out until we actually see them come on campus. So I think that's going to be an interesting part of it, too. I think there's a lot of I think there's gonna be a lot of anticipation. I think there's a little bit of anxious anxiety, too, with just being able to get into a new lifestyle, not just, you know, as Eddie mentioned before, but like getting going into college and new life changes, not being around, you know, like your family and all that, but also, you know, trying to find out where everything is and being able to, op- you know, wearing a mask in buildings and like all that too, it's going to be really interesting. And um, it's going to be a really experience that we're all going to have to go through too. I mean, you know, this campus, you know, it, they try to have like those like more like science classes in person and everything, but it's going to be a uh, different and um, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting. Cause I think it's going to be, it's a different for everybody. It's different um, even for us too. Cause we haven't been on campus aside for calling games and also for radio too, for, um, for being able to travel to games and being able to uh, cover games uh, inside from remotely. I mean, that was one of the drawbacks of um, one of the negatives of that was we had to do the first March Madness trip in 30 years for the men's hoops team uh, off the monitor. And I think that now we'll be able to get back to doing the things that we like and being able to have people participating in such as Nightline and Rutgers Countdown, our pre and post game uh, shows for football and being able to interact too with them. I could tell just being, um, off air talking um, with Coach O'Neill uh, yesterday, and he was 
saying it was just great to just be back in that normal flow of us, you know, being able to speak to him, not over Zoom. And I'm sure that Coach Peichel and all the, the coaches are going to feel the same way about that, is that you kind of get that sense of, you know, you, you build those relationships and, and all that. And we've done, they've, we've done, they've done a good job of that over Zoom. There's nothing, nothing short of that. But I think it's going to be just even better to be able to, talk to them in person and be able to just get that, you know, being able to go to the stadiums too and seeing the game up from the TV because there's stuff that we miss sometimes that you don't see unless you're at the stadium uh, in person to see it. Yeah, and we've heard so many professional announcers who have, you know, been upset about having to call games off monitors. Of course, everybody's seen the incident from about a month ago when John Sterling called an Aaron Judge home run. Yeah. That was a replay. Uh, yeah. Every, yep, everybody's, I remember had, that. everybody's had their own challenges with this. But uh, circling a little bit back to freshmen too, like one of the other difficult challenges that really comes at Rutgers, uh, because this is such a diverse campus, it's so large with the five different places that you can have classes. Yeah. It's it's different than going from Mr. Johnson's room to Mrs. Smith's room three doors down the hall if you're going to a class on Bush to a class on College Avenue. I just got my schedule today and I saw that I have some classes some days off one on Bush, one on College Avenue, one online. So it's it's a lot of different ways to learn and uh, there's a learning curve for everybody getting yeah. involved in this, especially since there's still going to be some classes that are hybrid or online and then others that are in person. So right, right. there's a lot of variety to people's schedules that nobody's really used to yet. So it's going to be a lot of just adapting to the situation and right. throughout September, just getting ready, getting back into that college mindset and getting ready to get into the swing of things for the fall semester. I think that's another interesting thing to talk about, too. And can we just talk is about, you know, getting into that. You know, what I always like to do with school, what I was like, have a routine, like maybe I go to like the gym one morning and then I would go like do a class, like even online learning. I tried to do like a similar schedule or like maybe like if we usually do football interviews, say, I don't know, like four o'clock at uh, the Hale Center, I would like get on a Zoom for football and get set for that. And at like whenever they would have it and kind of break up my day in, in that parts. And it's it's honestly I'm going to like. Like, I usually like to, like, plan a little bit ahead about what my days are going to be like. All I know right now is my classes. I don't, you know, it's going to be even that, like, just trying to get in the ebb and flow and trying to figure out when should I leave all that and, like, fitting everything in it. It's going to take a couple weeks at, at least, I think, to just trial and error. And I think that this fall semester, I mean, you know, barring, you know, obviously Rutgers has done a very excellent job of uh, making sure everybody's safe and everybody follows protocols and all that. And I think that... Um, you know, keeping that in constant, I think, is going to be important. And I think that um, getting into like that routine, it'll, it's going to take some adjustment. It's going to be, I think it's going to be similarly to adjusting just how we have to do with online learning. But this is going to be different where, as we've like done this before, aside from like some freshmen and sophomores who are having really gone to a class on Scott Hall just down College Avenue right across from the yard um, and having to go from, I don't know, Scott Hall to the Livy classrooms by the uh, Livy apartments by the student center, which is about like a 10 minute bus ride. And you're going to see if you have classes on Livingston, you know, you're going to have to see those LX buses are always crowded at rush hour time around three to six. It's mm -hmm. so hard to get on a bus, um, which is which is really not fun. Um, so it's going to be really interesting. And Chris, it's going to be interesting seeing those buses just packed with people really trying to get back, trying to go to class at that three to six o'clock and all that hours and in the morning. I remember living on living my freshman year. It was always I had like a 950 class on College Avenue. It was always, always packed the first couple of weeks to get on. Then it just like kind of staggered and simmered down because everybody was kind of figuring out their routine too. Yeah, I, I think that that's going to be the biggest thing is because my routine was so different when I had to um, you know, go on Zoom classes. And I still have two Zoom classes, unfortunately, this semester. So 
Yeah, um, I know. How that, you know yeah. I'm not totally back, but, um, you know, just being on campus, being able to do all those things, go to the gym, uh, you know, hang out with friends on the weekends, um, stuff like that, you know, that we kind of took for granted before COVID. Being able to, like, uh, get food and, like, study. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you just feel like a college student and not, you know, someone watching YouTube videos. Yeah. Uh, There's no interaction. Exactly. So, you know, I think it's going to be great. Yeah, I I think so too. I think it's gonna be really interesting to see how it um all develops. 